make a statement that we'll pray. Acts chapter 6, verse 1 again. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you, among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. I want you to notice here uh, a couple of things. One is notice that the number of the disciples was not just adding. It wasn't just, okay, we got a new person today and now there's a new person tomorrow. No, it was multiplying. There were problems in the church and there always are problems. Life is problems. Managing, managing problems is part of life. And a church there, the church at Jerusalem, had its problems. And the apostles came up with a biblical answer. We're going to look for it. They looked and found in the Bible a great example of how to deal with this problem from Exodus chapter 18. And it's called sharing the load. It's called making sure there's not just a few doing all the work. And that, that was so that the core work of the church continued. Did you notice what the core work of the church was? Prayer and the ministry of the word. So let's pray. Father, Help us to hear your word today and let it sink down deep into our hearts and motivate our fingers and our feet. So it's not just something we come and we hear and don't do, but that we be doers of the word. So, Lord, I, I thank you for this example. I thank you that the problems that came actually produced greater participation, greater work. And, Lord, I pray we'd never let problems discourage us, but that they would motivate us. And draw us closer together as, as, as one, as a body of believers for the work of the gospel. Because there's much work to do. I pray that you would do a work in every heart, especially that person that is not saved. Lord, they don't realize how close they are to hell. And they've come to church this morning and they sit in this audience and they hear the word of God. And yes, they can walk right out. They're free to do that. But their life is like a vapor, vapor and they have no guarantee of the next hour or the next day. And today would be the day for them to get saved, for them to realize that Christ Jesus died for them. And they can be born again just by crying out to you, not by doing good works. We're going to talk about works, but those things don't save us. They're part of our Christian life now that we're saved. But if there's somebody in here who's not saved, Lord, I pray they get saved. That's why you came. That's why you died. That's why you did everything. So they can just trust you and receive the gift of eternal life. So, Lord, may today just be the day that you do a work in every heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, let's go back a few weeks here, and uh, I want you to go to Acts chapter 1. And back just a few weeks earlier, worship before the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus was in synagogues. That's where people gathered, and they worshiped God, and centered around the temple, that Jewish temple in Jerusalem. They were living under the law, and up until that point, the people were still looking for their Messiah. Then they ended up killing Jesus, thinking he's not our Messiah. Crucify him. We don't want this guy. But he didn't stay dead, did he? He got up. And that changed everything. Not only did, did uh, lives get changed, but worship changed. And where they worshiped, everything changed. Born again, believers started assembling. That's that unique word. Don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. They started being a church. They gathered together. They assembled together. They, they um, uh, gathered together and assembled together as a church. This was the first church in Jerusalem. So look in Acts chapter 1 and verse 12. I get there myself. 112. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they were come in, they went in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zelotes and Judas the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, and notice what it says, parentheses, the number of names together were about 120 
people. So that was the beginning. There's 120 of them, a little bit more than what we've got here today, gathered, squished into an upper room up on the first floor there. And that turned into what we know as the day of Pentecost. And on that day in Acts chapter 2, uh, 3,000 got saved. Go to the next page. Go to chapter 2 and verse 40. Peter starts preaching. Verse 40, Acts 2, 40. And with many other words did he, Peter, testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation, people who are not toward God, even though they're very religious. They're very untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word, that's faith, were baptized. And the same day were added unto them about 3,000. So they had about 120. Now they got about 3,120. 3,000 souls got saved. Within a week, look in chapter 4 and verse 4. 5,000 more got saved. Chapter 4 and verse 4. Peter keeps preaching and people get keep getting saved. Verse 4, howbeit many of them which heard the word, they also believed. And the number of the men was about 5,000. So what you see is Jerusalem has become a beehive of preaching and soul winning and teaching. I guarantee you, for those weeks and on end, the only thing that was the topic of conversation was not COVID. It was Jesus is alive. And that stirred that city. I tell you, I, I, I never knew that one subject could dominate the whole world's conversation like it has for the last two years. Wouldn't it be great if one concept was talked about like the gospel? What a world this would be if it was getting the gospel. Now, back there in chapter 6 and verse 1, you come up with this church that's got over 10,000 people in it. Say, what would you do if 10,000 people got saved? I would pass out. <laughs> that, there's a lot of work with that many people, okay? So there was, there was loads for everyone to do in this church. Look in chapter 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, I mean, 120 to 3,000, 3,000 to 5,000. It says later on, it says they couldn't number them anymore. Just too many. And it says there arose... Uh, a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. So let me let me just before we go into the murmuring there, church has never been about just coming, sitting, and watching. Somebody tell me what's the difference between that and that? Nothing. They're both sitting there watching something else go on, watching some other energy. Here in the sports, it may be somebody kicking a ball, carrying a ball, hitting a ball, catching a ball. All right? And they're all, yay, 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 yay. Well, here, this is a little deader, right, sometimes. But they're just watching somebody up the front, whether singing or preaching or teaching or praying, but they're both spectating. And that's not what church is. Yes, we come and we gather and we hear preaching, but this is not what church is. This is where we get our, our hearts on fire and excited and motivated so that we, as the church, work. So that we do, be doers of the word is our theme this year. Not just hearers only, not just spectators. So it's a church is all about growing. It's about multiplying. I'm glad for everybody that comes in. I'm glad for one, two, three, doesn't care. But it's nice when it's two, four, eight, 16, 32, 64, 128, 256, 512, 1024. It multiplies. That's pretty cool. And it takes work. The gospel ministry is work. What does it take? Soul winning. You know what was going on in that that church, they were, they were giving the gospel out. They were compelling people to get born again. They were preaching and teaching how to live as Christians and not as Jews anymore. Every one of us have grown up a certain way. You know what the gospel is? A new way. So well, I grew up in a Christian home. Doesn't matter. Before you got saved, you lived your way. Once you got saved, you decided, I'm going to follow Jesus' way. And people need to learn how to be Christian, how to be Christ-like. So there was constant work going on with that. There were prayer meetings every day. Do you realize that? They didn't, they couldn't stop praying and gathering and preaching and all the things that were going on. It 
They were making handwritten copies of the Bible. Can you imagine how many people, there's 10,000 new believers there, and they're all asking for, Matthew, we hear you've got a gospel. Can I make a copy? Can you imagine how just it just exploded with activity? People were making hand copies of the Bible. And they were taking care of one another. There was a lot going on. Uh, there were people who needed, they needed food. They needed shopping to be done. Needed bills to be paid. Somebody needed to prepare meals and mow grass and patch roofs and mend fences. People sometimes just need somebody to sit there and listen while they talk. There's just fellowship that's needed. Uh, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, taking care of people is the government's job. And I got, I want to beg to differ with you. It is not the government's job to take care of you. All right. But there are people who can't take care of themselves, they're invalid, or as we're gonna learn here, they're widows, and they have no family to take care of them, and that's our job. If they're saved, well, they're first in line for being taken care of. Look in chapter four, go back a few pages to Acts chapter four. From chapter two, three, four, and end of chapter five, you find the Christians, every Christian, trying to take care of everyone else. And that's a good thing. Look at Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. And the multitude, there's that word, of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither said any of them that all of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. That's a, that's a great testimony. There was a great spirit, a great attitude of just grace. Somebody's got, they, they, they've got a lot of history, a lot of past, and people had grace with them. People didn't have any money, they had grace with them. They just met needs. There was great grace, verse 34. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses, they went and they sold them. And they brought in the prices of things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. That was, that was awesome. There was work going on. People saw needs. They were meeting needs. They were caring for one another like New Testament Christianity is supposed to. But it didn't stay that way. When we come to chapter 6, we caught a problem. Problems and then murmurings began. Things got out of balance. Look in verse 1. Again, in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring. What's a murmuring? Complaining, grumbling. All right. Uh, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews. All of a sudden, there's a racial split there. These were Greek believers, and these were Hebrew believers, Greek-speaking and Hebrew-speaking. And all of a sudden, they were not getting along, and there was a split there because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration, the daily care of the people. So what you've got is Greek widows were going without food. You say, how is that possible? All right, I want you to understand the, the, the scenario here. These were Christian women who had... When, when these women got saved, their families abandoned them. Their families had taken care of them, but now that they were Christian, now they were following Christ, their families who were Jews, who were Jewish, says, we have nothing more to do with you, and they abandoned their mother. Their, their husband's dead, so he can't take care of her. And so the widow's sitting there, and normally the church was taking care of everybody, but then some people got neglected because they weren't Hebrew. They weren't of our kind. And so they're kind of marginalized and they're second class and they're, we'll, we'll worry about you when we've got ours taken care of. And there was a division and it was causing a hurt in that church. It's always been the case. I don't care where you're at. You're always going to have somebody that's marginalized. And a church is supposed to be one heart. We're supposed to be one body. We're not supposed to notice differences. We're supposed to notice Christ. And we're supposed to help people become more like Christ instead of saying, well, you know, uh, we won't take care of you or we won't take care of this person. You're not like me. So there was persecution and abandonment. As a matter of fact, when you read in chapter four, it says that people were losing their jobs. Their employers who were not Christian were firing Christians just simply because they were no longer Jewish. They were following this Messiah. People were getting kicked out of their houses and, and they were on the street. 
and people were hungry. Nobody would uh, would would sell them products. It was the it was persecution, and that folks, let me tell you, that was not just in that day. That's going on still to this day. All over the world, there are intense persecution. There are people who are Christian who are suffering. It's just doesn't get in the news. They don't talk about Christians being persecuted because that's old. That that's old news. You know, I mean, if I, uh, it, you know, uh, uh, any other ethnic group, if they get a persecution, they'll get front page. But Christians, they're not mentioned, and yet they are thoroughly, seriously abused, especially over in uh, Asia. So. Uh, the church in Jerusalem was doing nothing about it. They were neglecting to take care of this need. And, and that made people concerned, and they started to complain. Now, that's, that's normal. Our flesh loves to complain. We love to find a, a fault and then raise an issue. And, oh, my goodness, back there in the wilderness when Israel came out of Egypt and God had taken care of them, and they... They went three days without food. They started to complain. It says, we want to go home. We want to go back to Egypt. And Moses said, what? And they started to complain. So God gives them manna. Then they complain about water. So God opens up a rock and, and pours water for a million and a half people. Then they get tired of the manna and they start complaining, saying, we loathe this white bread. God says, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> complaining will wear anyone out. And God had no time for complaining. And all of a sudden, the apostles said, we got to deal with this thing. Because this was threatening to wreck all the work of, of the gospel in that city. That city of Jerusalem was, was on fire with the gospel. And what the devil do? He threw in a problem to try to divide them. Somebody needed to do something and needed to do it quickly. James 1.27, don't go there. It says, pure religion and undefiled is this. I got to find my verse here. Um, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. To visit means to go and to meet their needs, go and find out how they are, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. You, know, you, know, you can't just be Christian without trying to do something for others. So someone needed to do something quickly before all of that murmuring turned into all-out war. Christians don't fight, do they? Christians don't argue, do they? Yeah, they do. So Acts 6-2, then the 12, here are the 12 here, called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, okay, everybody, we're going to have a meeting. And they said, it is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Huh. Now, what they're saying is basically the apostles alone could not do everything. Uh, they couldn't meet the need by themselves. Yeah. I mean, maybe if there was just 120 of them, they could take care of all of that. But there were at least 10,000 people, and there were hundreds of widows. Some of them were being neglected. How are they going to take care of all of this? It didn't make sense to make the few do the most work. They were all, ladies, you know about this, okay? You know what it's like when there's somebody doing most of the work and somebody else sitting there watching games or on their phone or whatever. It's not fair that somebody who's super busy be made to do more. I found out when I worked for the telephone company that the boss always came and gave jobs to those who were busy. Did you ever notice that? Always frustrated me. I said, why are you giving it to me? Because if you're an employer, you look for somebody who is busy because you know you can give them more and they'll do more because they love working. But there is a limit. There's a limit. You've got to spread it out there. The apostles alone could not do everything. Uh, especially while the majority of the other Christians in that church were sitting idly by ignoring the work that needed to be done. So the church leaders asked for help. Is it okay to ask for help? Hmm? Is it okay to, to say, we need help? Amen. So what I'd like for us to do is to learn as a church how we can better do the work of the gospel together. And the first thing we need to do, look in verse 3, is we need to find ready men. Look in verse 3. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. 
Now, if you ever got a problem, the first thing you do is you look and you find an example or a truth or a principle in the Bible that gives you the answer to your problem. And that first thing comes up, we go back to Exodus chapter 18, where a very similar situation is happening. Exodus chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18, going to read a couple of, there's going to be about 12 scriptures here. Exodus 13 verse, or sorry, Exodus 18 verse 13. They found an answer from the life of Moses and the burdens he was bearing. Look at Exodus 18 and verse 13. It came to pass on the morrow that Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood by Moses from the morning until the evening. That sounds okay. He's just sitting there, help people find out what the Bible says about how to deal with problems. Verse 14. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did to the people, he said, what is this thing that thou doest to the people? Why sittest, thyse- why sittest thou thyself alone? And all the people, like a long queue, stand by thee from morning unto even, waiting for answers. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Well, because the people come unto me to inquire of God. When they have a matter, they come unto me. And I judge between one and another, and I do make them know the statutes of God and his ways. It's all I know what to do. Verse 18. I'm sorry, verse 17. And Moses' father-in-law said unto him, The thing that thou doest is not good. Thou will surely, what? You'll wear away. Both thou and not only you're going to wear out, the people standing there for hour on end waiting to talk to you are going to wear out. For this thing is too heavy for thee. Thou art not able to perform it thyself alone. Hearken now unto my voice. Listen to me. I will give thee counsel and God shall be with thee. Be thou for the people to Godward. Make sure you're there as, as, as somebody who's praying for those people. Um, that thou mayest bring the causes unto God, praying, and thou shalt, and what's the next part? Teach them ordinances and laws. That's the ministry of the word. First part, praying. Second part, teaching the word. And thou shalt show them the way wherein they must walk and the, and the work that they must do. Moreover, this is what I'm telling you to do, his father-in-law Jethro says, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men such as fear God, Men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over the people to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of ten. And let them judge the people at all seasons. Somebody's got a simple problem. They go to the guy who handles, who deals with groups of ten. Gets a little more complicated, passes on to the guy who deals with groups of hundred. Moves it up to groups of thousand. If it's really hard, it comes up to Moses. Look in verse 22. And let them judge the people at all seasons, and it shall be that every great matter they shall bring unto thee, but every small matter they shall judge. So shall it be easier for thyself, and they shall bear the burden with thee. Isn't that precious? I mean, you know, sometimes somebody's trying to do their best, and they're serving God, and they're wearing out, and it takes somebody else to look in and look, oh, you know what? I've got a suggestion. (laughs) And it's so good. Verse 23, and if thou shalt do this thing, and ask God if it's the right thing, if God command thee so, then thou shalt be able to endure. And all this people shall go to their place in peace. So Moses hearkened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Those 70 men helped carry the load that Moses had been carrying alone. And that is our example here that we're going to find here because these Christians back, let's go to Acts uh, again, Acts chapter 6. These Christians were watching the 12 apostles wear themselves out. Because I guarantee you, the apostles were not just sitting twiddling their thumb. I think, I've told you this before, I think that some people imagine that I sort of, all week long I'm golfing, or I'm, you know, bungee jumping, or I'm, you know, I don't know. What else would be fun to do? I don't know. And all of these things, what's that? Just goofing off, you know, and... Um, watching uh, some stupid Coronation Street, East Benders, and all the other things that are going on. And that's all I do. And then on Saturday night, I sit down and I go, okay, let's get, let's get working on this message real quick. And I throw some things down on a piece of paper, and I get up here, and I spit, and I holler, and we all go home. No, okay? It takes a lot of work if you have a church. And 
these 12 apostles needed to see if there were godly men among the people that were ready to serve in the ministry. Now, every business takes inventory. It takes inventory of its products. But we don't have products. We take inventory of our people. We look among ourselves and we say, is there anybody who's ready to serve, who can stand with pastor, who can work alongside him? Now, notice the characteristics they looked for, all right? Go out and look for that handsome man. That politically powerful guy who knows the ins and outs and has got connections. The successful businessman, right? That's the one we're looking for, right? That's who we want helping out in church, don't we, huh? No. No. Look at what he says there again in Acts chapter 6. He says, look ye out among you, verse 3, seven men of honest report. That's very, very important. Secondly, full of the Holy Ghost, secondly. And thirdly, full of wisdom. Now, honest report means you got a good track record. People have watched you for, for a while, and they can tell you that's a trustworthy man. That's a faithful man. That's a godly man. That's, that's somebody doesn't have, listen, we may have stuff in our past. But let me tell you, once we got saved and now that we're living for God, it's in our past. Amen. And these men are of honest report. Open books. Second thing says that they were full of the Holy Ghost. They took with their walk with Jesus seriously. I know what it's like to be full of anger. I know what it's like to be full of, of the devil. Are there men in this church that know what it's like to be full of the Holy Spirit of God? Well, evidently, it was evident so people could say, I know so-and-so. I've watched them. I know they're full of God. I know they're full of the Spirit of God. They're spiritual men. They're hungry for God. And they're thoughtful men, very wise men. I remember... Growing up, I had probably the most important influence I had as a young boy was my grandfather. My grandfather was a lawyer. And, and, but I never knew how important he was in, in the scheme of things. I just knew when I talked to him, he didn't talk much. Okay, He wasn't constantly talking, talking, talking. But when he said something, it was like, wow. And I would, I would tell him all my plans. I'm going, I'm going to be an astronaut, Grandpa. I'm going to go into space. And he said, why would you do that? <laughs> and I would go, I don't know. I just want to do it. I want to live on the moon. All these things. That's what I told my granddad. And then he would sit there. Now he had a pipe. And he would go, and why would you do that? And I go, I don't know. <laughs> he says, you know, there's no air on the moon. I said, sure. Really? That was about six years old. I just want to tell you, my dad was a thoughtful, cautious, careful man that you would trust with your life. He didn't just, he wasn't impulsive. He wasn't arrogant. He didn't, he wasn't living by feelings or emotions. He was wise. And that's what we need in men today because there are men who are driven by urges. There are men who are driven by emotions. God help us. There are men who are driven by popular opinion. There are men who are driven by a wink and a nod and a wiggle of a girl and they're worthless in Christianity. We need some men who have, who have something to them that we can trust problems with, that we can trust burdens with. And that's what the apostles were calling for. We need men like this ourselves. And I'm not asking for volunteers either, but dedicated people who are appointed over this, building, uh, this business. What was their business? Oh, pastor, you, you want me to take care of the money? Pastor, you, you want me to preach? Pastor, you want me to lead an evangelistic campaign? Pa no, I want you to take care of widows. I want you to make sure they've got food and that they're taken care of, their grass is mowed. I want you to make sure their roofs have no leaks. I want you to take care of people who can never appreciate you like you deserve. I want you to minister to widows. That's your calling. wonder how many people would sign up and queue up and say, that's for me. You know, when it's a ministry, when you surrender to a ministry, 
it's something that if 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 you don't do it from that moment on, then it's not going to get done. That's how you have to, oh, pastor will take care of it. That's what happens. Well, if I'm not there, I know pastor will open the doors and turn the heat on, turn the lights on, set the chairs up. I think we need to get over that and grow up, amen? Because we have an attitude of, I don't have to be there. I don't have to help. It's not necessary to help out pastor and the other people who give their time. Because folks, let me tell you, sometimes people can't be here. But everybody ought to be dedicated to serving. So that when we have a ministry, any one of our ministries, if you're not there, then it's not going to get done. That's how important we've got to take this. That's what, because those women, those widows, again, these are Greek speaking. It's a racial issue. These were people that are different than the Hebrew speakers. And that culture didn't care about Greek speakers. And now they have to, but they're neglecting them. And so the apostle says, we're not going to neglect them. Guys, we're putting you in charge of making sure they're taken care of. And if you don't do it, it won't get done. That's scary. So look at verse 4. The second thing we need to do is we need to fuel the engines of Christian growth. Look in verse 4. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Do you remember, did you notice what is the core work of the church? Two things, prayer and the ministry of the word. And I have to say one more thing. It's in that order. I love doing the work of the ministry. But you know what's more important than preaching? Do what's more important than soul winning? Do what's more important than counseling? Prayer. I wish we got that. I wish we worried, have we prayed enough, Pastor? Is there another prayer meeting I can get involved in so that we're praying for our, our, our children's church, so that we're praying for 12 weeks to freedom? That's it's in that order. The first work, before all other work, if, we're going, if we want anything we do to be accomplished, our first work must be prayer. And that includes private prayer. That includes the time where you are personally, quietly worshiping God. Prayer meetings and more prayer meetings and more prayer meetings. They cease not. House to house, they loved going and being together and praying together. Constant prayer. Prayer is, you say, what is prayer? Prayer is basically spending time with the Son of God as if he's here. Let me say that again. Prayer is actually you spending time with Jesus as if he is right there. What if you were a disciple, an apostle back then, and Jesus is gone? And he said, we need to go spend time with Jesus. But he's not here. Oh, but he will be in a few moments. When I close my eyes and I bow my heart and my body before him, he shows up. What does it say on our wall back there from Matthew chapter 18, where two or three are gathered together in my name? I'm there. And when we pray and we gather to pray, it's because we believe we're spending time with Jesus. Ministering the word. That's work. As I said, Jesus said to Peter, he said, feed my sheep. Paul says to the pastors there in Ephesus, feed the flock of God. Doing the ministry of the word means answering people's questions, even the hard ones. Showing people how to study the word of God for yourself. Preaching on the streets and in the market so everyone hears. Going to court. <laughs> Going into prisons. Going from town to town, teaching and preaching and caring about the lost Ministry of the word is a lot of work. And if you, you know, um, if you think that those things are easy to do, I got news for you. Then you don't pray because prayer is hard. You ever try to pray for an hour? I won't even ask you if you've ever, ever prayed for an hour. But if you ever try to pray for more than 10 minutes, all of a sudden your mind starts to wander. You want to look at your phone. <laughs> you want to, yeah. Praying is work. You know, if you, um, if you ever do start serving people, you're going to wear out. People will abuse you. Once you start meeting a need, they go, and I have another need. 
you ever go to somebody's house and says, is there anything for me to do? They go, yeah, uh, can you mow the grass? And as soon as you finish the grass, they go, um, you know, I've also got this problem on my back fence. You'll be there all day. You'll always find yourself working. It never runs out. Um, by the way, if you ever do put prayer as a priority, you'll always be late. You'll always be behind schedule. It's just that way. Prayer doesn't make your day come more organized and more, more. No, no. If you spend time with the Lord, you'll lose time. And all of a sudden, oh, I got to catch up. Oh, that's a mark. Nobody else may know you're spending time with God. But the fact that you're rushing to catch up with the rest of the world that's not praying is a testimony that you know you've arrived. You'll not get as much sleep as everyone else either because you'll have to get up earlier. You'll have to take time where everybody else is sawing logs. And yet, the way you know you're putting prayer first is that you yearn to pray longer. Wow, that's, that's if you ever really start praying. Now, these two things were not just for the apostles. They're not saying that we would give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, but you got to understand that's where it began. And what was happening was the problem was, was pulling them away from their primary purpose. And that was their walk with God and their work of the word, preaching and ministering in every way. So the word was getting out. And in that pull, they said, wait, wait we've got to fuel the engine of our church and of our growth. So we need help. So I'm asking. As a church, would you help me? So that I and others can devote ourselves to these great efforts. Now, I'm not asking that you be busy and I go on holiday. That's not what Paul, well, not he's not here, but Peter and James and John are asking. But that you can help us so that we stay balanced. You need to find a ministry in our church that helps people. That's, that's what you're supposed to do. If you came... And you're just sitting here. I welcome you. You're welcome to just sit there. But I want to tell you, I hope the Holy Spirit moves in you and says, let's get busy. Let's find something to do. And then get busy doing that as a service to the Lord. You do not look at widows and say, well, here, here's your groceries. <laughs> no. Who are you doing it unto? As unto the Lord. Every ministry is as a service to the Lord. Now, not everyone can do everything. But everyone can do something. Everyone do something. So the church goes through a great reset. Look there in verse 5. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. So the whole church, 10,000 of them, all were in unity again. They were pleased with this decision. There was no more grumbling or complaining. That division was now healed and they put forth seven men. They looked and says, I, I recommend so-and-so and, -so, and I, I, I know so-and-so and they put forth these seven men and you know, these men are amazing. Stephen, you know Stephen, look at the testimony. A man, everyone knew as a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. He was, he, he, this man ultimately ends up in chapter seven being stoned. Didn't run from either the, the ministry or from the cost. But then there's this guy named, he comes up, Philip. Oh, go back. Philip, he's a go-getter. His name means lover of horses, but his name actually comes out. He's a go-getter. This is a guy that goes into Samaria, ends up going into Samaria, and there's a revival up there. And then God says, I want you to go meet this Ethiopian eunuch. He wins him and baptizes him. He's a go-getter. Then you got this guy, Procurus. I like that. He's a choir leader. That's what his name means. He's, he's a leader of praise. Then another guy named Nicanor. His name means victorious. You know, names mean something. But I don't think these names meant anything until lives started to shine through. And he says, you know, Nicanor, he's, he, he always lives in victory. Purcurus, he always gets me to praise God. Philip, he's motivated me. Every time I'm around Philip, he wants me to go and do something with him. Then there's this other guy named Timon. He's honorable. Man, I wish we had some honorable men. I'm sick and tired of, of, of the world dumbing 
down masculinity in, in perverting the minds of young men so that by the time they're 17, 18, and 19, I wouldn't shoot them. Because they're not, they're not trustworthy. They're not honorable. They can't keep their word. They can't work a job. And yet they all want to have a baby. They all want to have a girlfriend. They all want to have money coming in their pockets. There's another guy named Parmenas. Parmenas. Listen to the meaning of his name. A man who stays. Ladies, you like that guy for your husband, amen? <laughs> Think about these names. Those meanings came about because of the lives of these men. Their, their, their names became the meaning of that word. Uh, Nicholas means submitted and yielded. These were seven godly, faithful men who cared about people, didn't care about power or money, didn't even care about their own lives. They were just willing to work. Would your name, if I asked for, is there people that you could suggest, would your name be suggested? Or would people go, don't mention so-and-so? Now, these leaders, boy, they prayed over these men and they they prayed for them to be spiritually enabled to serve you know if you're ever going to serve for the lord you're going to need the power of the spirit of god because your flesh will wear out these these apostles began to pray to make them willing to stay in the background these aren't going to be the ones that are going to be up on the forefront and being the most important no these are the these are people who hold people up and carry them and they're unthanked and unappreciated or underappreciated. But what are they doing? They're going to share the load. And that was when things started happening. Verse 6. It says, when they said before, or like verse 7, and the word of God increased. Its influence and impact increased. And the number of the disciples, what did they start doing again? They multiplied again in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company even of the priests were obedient to the faith. You know, it'd be like a bunch of Roman Catholic bishops and Church of Ireland vicars came walking down saying, we've heard about your doctrine. We've heard you preach. We've watched you on the internet, but I've seen your people. And I've seen those Christians of your church and I've seen how they live and how they serve. And I tell you what, I now want to follow Jesus. The lives of your people convinced me the truth of the gospel works. Do you see how it worked? When those priests were getting saved, these were devout Jewish leaders converting and following Christ, all because Christians were starting to get busy and putting the word of God into action. I already went through all this. Why did it work? Three, four thoughts and I'm done. Why did it work? Because the church is a body, not an organization. An organization does what it does for money. Ask Google why they exist. <laughs> to take your money. We don't exist that way. We do things because it's how we live. This is how a body of believers thrives. A body cannot survive with just a few parts working. Neither can a church. Everyone's got to be doing their part and doing it well, especially if we want to win the race as a, as a Christian church. Secondly, because the church, the reason why this works is because the church sought to keep the right things a priority. What were the things to keep priority? Prayer and ministry of the word. So what's the priority in a lot of churches? Making people happy. That's not the priority of a church. Oh, well, the priority of the church is to feed it. No, that's not the priority of the church. That may be something we have to do. There are lots of things we may do, but what's our priority? It's prayer and the ministry of the word to people. Third, I want to make another statement because men got busy in the ministry. That's why it is so, it is often so much easier to get women to help out. If I ask for volunteers, nine out of 10 volunteers will be women. And that's not a problem. Or is it? I mean, I take anybody, but God prefers men because only men can carry the heavy burdens of ministry. And gentlemen, we've got to start carrying burdens. I mean, if you only come to church for the fun and for the food and for the games and for the hype and for the entertainment, then you won't stay very long. But real men say, where can I serve? 
what can I do? Last thing, the reason why this worked back there in the first century and why it works still today is because it's God's pattern for every true church. It's God's pattern that not a few people do most of the work. As they say, 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. It's not right. The pattern is that the entire congregation cares about each other. Look at Galatians, and we're through here. Go to Galatians chapter 5. To the right. After 1st and 2nd Corinthians comes Galatians chapter 5. Two scriptures and we're done. In verse 13. You say, woohoo, I'm saved. Amen. Good. That's just the beginning. Galatians 5, 13. For brethren, ye have been called unto, not bondage, not slavery. You're not, you've been called unto liberty. You're free now in Christ. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, to, so for your own purposes, for your own joy and happiness. No. But by love, what should we do? Serve one another. Would you say that verse with me again? Say it out loud with me. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. But by love, serve one another. Go to chapter 6 and verse 10. Last scripture. Say it with me out loud. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. What was that little word? Us. Let us. Let's all. Minister to everybody, but especially unto one another. By way of conclusion, there's some things we need to do from this moment on. Let's desire to learn how to give ourselves continually unto prayer. We're going to learn about that next week. I got greatly convicted about that. Let's decide to addict ourselves to the ministry of the word. You're going to have to become addicts to the ministry. I'll talk about that also later in the month. Where there, addict is a Bible word. Did you know that? It's, there are times when it is a good thing to be addicted to the ministry. Or you can't help but do something for others. From this moment on, let's become men and women, but especially men who are spirit-filled. I'm glad you're here. Gentlemen, I'm glad you're men. But that's not enough. We need to be spirit-filled. We need to be spirit-filled men. I think our wives are tired of us just being men. By the way, come tonight, 6 o'clock. I didn't have it on there. We have our men made right. And we're talking about the filling of the Spirit. You ought to be here, gentlemen. Ladies, pray for men to man up. Pray for our young men to be men who are ready to carry the burdens of a church. You know what's happening? Young boys are growing up. Young girls are growing up in church. And then by the time they get 17, 18, they're gone. You know what happened? We forgot to get them involved in church. We forgot to get them involved in ministry. We forgot that they have a part to play and they don't feel a part. And I can't manage people's emotions, but I've got a work to do and I'm calling people join with me. We need to pray for our young men to man up and to serve because they'll make a great church. And then lastly, I've got to ask this, as I said in the beginning, do you even know where you're going when you die? Ask Asked about a dozen people on the street on Friday. Do you know where you're going when you die? <laughs> Weston asked one guy. Boy, was it awesome. This guy um, uh, said, no, I don't know. I think Weston talked to him about 45 minutes, and then I got to talk to him about 10 or 15 minutes. It was awesome. You know, do you know where you're going when you die? Say, yes, I do, Pastor. I'm going to heaven. Praise God. Why? Because Jesus saved me. Amen. But if you don't know, that's your little indicator light on your dashboard saying, get saved <laughs> before it's too late. Would you stand with me and bow your head? Our God in heaven, there are always needs in a church. There are always things to do. Especially in a church, we call them ministries. They're not problems. 
There are opportunities for different people with different talents and different abilities to serve and to meet needs and to edify and build up one another, Lord. And this month is our month on the ministries. Lord, the work of the gospel is great work, but it can't be done by a few. It has to be done by all. It has to be. So would you put in our heart a desire to be a part of something more than just the chair, more than just a pew? God, I, I ask that if somebody sort of backslid and they got cold, cooled off, may they pray for revival and beg God, God, put that fire back in me where I used to go soul winning, where I used to be at church every time the doors were open, where I used to serve, and now I'm just cold and hard and grumpy and that's not how that's not how you want me to be. It's not what you saved me for. Give me revival. I know I'm wrong, but make me right. Make me a servant again, like Jesus. Lord, in this room, there could be any number of people who go through life and listen to the Bible and never put it in their heart to never realize that they're missing the greatest gift ever. And it's the gift of forgiveness, the gift that Jesus purchased for them. Anyone in this room can right now, they don't have to talk to me, they don't have to talk to anybody, they don't have to go anywhere, they can bow their head as we have done right now and cry out to you with their heart and ask you, save me please, a sinner. God, I'm lost. Every time pastor preaches, I, I realize I'm, I'm so far away. Could you really take me? Could you really accept me? Do you really love me? Do you want me? And Jesus says, yes to all the above. Jesus said, if you'll just call on my name to save you, I will. Dear friend, today would be the day for you to get saved. You don't want to wait till tomorrow because there's no guarantee. Dear Christian, there's no guarantee that you've got tomorrow before you start to serve either. Let's decide some things today in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>